This is an ABC podcast. Hello, Norman Swan here with this week's Health Report. Nice to have your company. Today on the programme, high times for Australia's boomers. Original sin, or at least a version of it, and how it might apply to both the flu and COVID-19. At a time when record numbers of Australian healthcare workers have been infected with the COVID-19 virus, how hospital safety rules can actually make things worse. And speaking of healthcare workers, you must watch this week's Four Corners on ABC Television or iView, a moving documentary following the work of an emergency department doctor in Cremona, Northern Italy, at the height of their epidemic. A lesson in what we've dodged so far. And going back to today's health report, radical new findings on the treatment of first episode psychosis in young people. I was trying to pretend that things were all okay, like I was working and going to uni, but everything just added up really quickly. Not being on that proper dose of medication, I think that's what led things to fall apart so drastically. But are medications with their side effects necessary in every young person? Find out more later. One of the issues during lockdown and after has been whether we've increased our drug taking with anecdotal evidence that we have, at least for alcohol. But key to understanding that is what was our drug taking before the pandemic hit? Last week, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare released the latest findings from the National Drug Strategy Household Survey, and it contains some surprises about the changing habits of the young and the old, well, older. Wayne Hall is professor of is professorial fellow at the Centre of Youth Substance Use Research at the University of Queensland. Welcome back to the Health Report, Wayne. Thank you, Norman. Long time between drinks. Um, first, give us it has the, been, yes. give us the findings on the young. Well, it's a phenomenon that's been observed in a lot of other comparable countries, the UK, the US, Canada, that they're drinking less, uh, less likely to binge, they're smoking uh, tobacco less, they're tending to use uh, most drugs at a lower rate than they used to. They're generally getting much healthier than uh, their older brethren. <laughs> it's amazing news. I mean, before we go any further, this survey, how, yeah. how does it do its work? How, do you, how reliable is it? Well, I mean, it's a survey that's been done now since I think 1985 was the first one. They're done by market research companies that they involve other face-to-face interviews or dropping questionnaires off at households and getting people to complete them. The the response rate's about the same as before, which is just under 50%, which has become pretty standard for household surveys these days because of uh, overload uh, amongst us, so we're more resistant to completing surveys than we once were. So is, and what you're suggesting is that because this pattern mimics what's happened overseas, it's likely to be reliable? I think it is. I mean, I think it's probably better for some drugs than others. I mean, I think the the data from these surveys are probably much uh, more uh, reliable for drugs like alcohol, tobacco and probably cannabis um, when you're dealing with uh, much less commonly used and much more stigmatised drugs, say like heroin or methamphetamine. Uh, you're less likely to capture people who are using those drugs in surveys of this sort and they're probably a bit less likely to acknowledge the use of a drug which is pretty stigmatised. What were the findings on ice, heroin and, say, prescription opioids? Uh, well, a mixture of uh, the findings on uh, methamphetamine where its uh, prevalence of use has remained pretty much the same as it was in the previous survey in 2016, around 1.5%, a little bit less. Uh, a bit more use of uh, 
ice, the crystalline methamphetamine form, uh, and those who used that drug were much more likely to be uh, regular users. The heroin, I don't think, has changed a lot. The uh, prescription opioids have um, declined, largely because we scheduled uh, codeine. Uh, it was no longer available over the counter and had to require a, a prescription, so there's been a lot less uh, use of that drug, and there's other, in, other uh, uh, information out there there on uh, problems related to uh, codeine that suggests that it's it's gone down fairly substantially. Before we get to the findings in older people, have we any idea why the young are such an example to the rest of us? Are becoming an example to the rest of us? Uh, well, there's lo lots of speculation. That's a, an area of very active research. And um, I mean, one suggestion is they're spending more time on social media and lose time to drink and socialise and get out and about. I suspect it's a combination of factors, but uh, we do uh, see these sort of long waves of um, alcohol uh, consumption where generations learn from the behaviour of their parents to um, moderate their consumption. If they see bad examples in older adults and older siblings and, and parents, then they sometimes are inclined to reduce their consumption. I think we have been through a period, uh, a decade or more of heavier drinking and alcohol-related problems. There's a lot more media attention to the downside of heavy drinking now, and I think that's probably having some sort of effect. Well, let's move now to older people because th there were some findings of increased usage, particularly of cannabis. Yeah, I mean, amongst older adults, uh, I mean, I think we need to put it in perspective. It's, it's particularly amongst the 40 to 49-year age group. The and this is use in the last year has gone from a bit under 9% up to a bit over 11%. And in the older adults over 60, it's gone from uh, a bit under 1% in 2001 to just a bit under 4% in 2009. This is, this is cannabis you're talking about? Yeah, this is use in the last year uh, amongst this, this age group. And I mean, I think a large part of it is a birth cohort effect. Uh, people now getting into their 60s, as you mentioned earlier, are boomers. Um, and they would so have they've been weed smokers since youth, is what you're telling me? Well, not so much since youth. I mean, I think a lot of uh, people in this age group have stopped and some are coming back to it, uh, possibly. Uh, there's probably a group of people who've persisted in using throughout that period. And we're seeing, again, this, a very similar phenomenon in, in North America, particularly the US uh, at the moment. So I think one, one part of it is the persistence of use and greater acceptability of cannabis use in, in this age group because they've had prior experience with it. I th think the other big factor is, of course, the very positive media around cannabis as a medicine for everything. Um, so medicinal cannabis. Uh, yeah. And particularly for things like chronic pain, uh, difficulty sleeping, anxiety, depression, which are all problems that uh, older adults uh, are more likely to experience. Yet there's no evidence that it makes any difference. Pretty, pretty soft evidence. I mean, there is evidence of a modest benefit in the case of chronic pain, but it's better than placebo, but not, not by much. Um, in the case of sleep, in the short term, it probably helps people to get off to sleep. But I think the, the worry with a lot of uh, what people see as medical use in, in this age group is that uh, it tends to be pretty regular. In the US uh, surveys there, medical users tend to be much more likely to be daily users. And there is and that's a pattern. Well, I mean, the obvious one's dependence, and it's, uh, I think it's still an underappreciated risk of cannabis. You can develop dependence on the drug. You develop tolerance. That's the, the downside, the effects of the drug. So you uh, take more and more to get the same effect. That's right. Uh, so it can become a, a bit of an expensive uh, habit. And I guess when you're getting into older, older age groups, you, you know, if you're uh, 
you've got an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and smoking uh, cannabis or smoking anything is not a good idea. And we know that cannabis does have, have direct effects on the, well, THC has direct effects on the cardiovascular system. So a higher risk older adult population, probably not a great idea to be smoking cannabis. And finally and briefly, what about the brain and thinking and memory? Well, I think that's the other one, the, the cognitive impairment. Uh, I mean, in older adults, we've got less cognitive reserve, uh, say, than younger adults. And if we're smoking daily, um, you're probably uh, blunting your capacity a bit. Um, so there's there's that downside so as well, I think, we need to look, look at. A bit of drug education for the older in the community. I think so, yes. I think that'd be sensible. Wayne, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Wayne Hall is at the Centre for Youth Substance Use Research at the University of Queensland. And you're at RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Psychosis can be a symptom of serious mental illness and includes a loss of touch with reality and delusions such as hearing voices. Psychosis usually first appears in late adolescence or a person's 20s. And work at Melbourne's Origin, the National Centre for Excellence in Youth Mental Health, has put a lot of emphasis on detecting a young person's first episode of psychosis and treating it actively to prevent further episodes and the decline they bring with them. That active treatment is both psychological and medical, involving antipsychotic drugs, which unfortunately have side effects. But now research at Origin has found that medication might not always be necessary for recovery. The Health Report's David Murray has been investigating, and a warning this story contains references to self-harm. I was getting thoughts that were, to me, like clearly from outside my own brain, which was really scary. Jonty is 23. She goes to university and has a reasonable social life. But in 2014, in her last years of high school, her mind started to unravel. I started having mental health problems when I was in year 11. I started with anxiety. It slowly morphed into depression, and the depression slowly morphed into mania, and then the mania morphed into psychosis. This is when Jonty started hearing voices. Your thoughts mirror how you speak, like the words you use and your inflections, and that's normal inside your head, but I was getting thoughts that weren't my own. Jonty was prescribed clozapine, an antipsychotic medication, but because of the potential side effects, her doctors started on a below therapeutic dose. Her symptoms only got worse. I was trying to pretend that things were all okay, like I was working and going to uni, but everything just added up really quickly. Not being on that proper dose of medication, I think that's what led things to fall apart so drastically. Things continued to get worse. Jaunty experienced a major psychotic episode, the voices in her head urging her into multiple serious acts of self-harm. Eventually, in one of these incidents, she lost part of her leg. She chopped it off. After that, Jonty was admitted to hospital and her medication levels were increased. It worked, things started to improve, and today she's much better. But she still has to deal with the side effects of the medication that got her here. They've been really hard. So the main side effects for me have been weight gain and sedation. I'm on a pretty low dose now, but it still really knocks me out at night. I have to sleep at least eight hours, usually better if it's more like ten which is just really hard when you're trying to study, um, when you've got things going on, when you want to have a social life. And I wish that I could just wake up and feel refreshed and ready for the day, but that's not really something that happens too often for me. And Jondi's experience here isn't uncommon. 
Side effects can be a particular issue for young people, and it's part of the reason that some are reluctant to take them, and why others go off them against the advice of their doctors. Medication doesn't suit everyone, and not everyone wants to take medication. Dr Shona Franci is a clinical psychologist and researcher in early psychosis at Origin. Often the side effects are quite strong in young people. They can be unpleasant. Weight gain, very significant and um, distressing issue for many young people. There can also be sexual performance side effects, which is also distressing. Which is why Dr Franci has been looking into whether some young people might be able to avoid these side effects and the medication that causes them altogether. In a recently published study, a team at Origin compared outcomes for two groups of 15 to 25-year-olds presenting with the first episode, early psychosis. One group received a low dose of antipsychotic medication, along with an intensive program of cognitive behavioural case management. So helping young people with the broad range of issues that are going on in their life with a view to reducing stress levels, because we know that stress makes psychosis worse. But also within that, a specific what we call cognitively oriented therapy to look at thoughts and behaviours that are maintaining the psychotic symptoms. The other group received the case management but no medication. The study found that at the six-month follow-up period, there was no significant difference in outcomes between the two groups. That's the exciting findings, I think, from the study. Both groups improved, so everyone had less symptoms and higher functioning after six months. But the addition of the antipsychotic medication didn't really seem to make any difference. Which suggests that for young people experiencing early psychosis, heavy-duty antipsychotic medication might not always be needed. Traditionally, the mainstay of treatment for psychosis has been antipsychotic medication, the standard recommended treatment in practice guidelines. Professor Neil Thomas is the director of the Voices Clinic at Swinburne University, a leader in psychological treatments for people experiencing symptoms of psychosis. He wasn't involved in the origin study, but says it starts to fill in a major hole in what we know about the options for how to treat young people before they experience a major psychotic episode. Antipsychotic medications have been researched for decades, so there's there's evidence there that they are effective. So they've become part of the practice guidelines which are issued. Psychological therapies have tended to be researched as being an add-on to antipsychotic medication. What we've lacked is what happens when psychological therapies are done as an alternative. Professor Thomas hopes that with the finding that psychological treatments can be just as effective as medication in the right circumstances, the options presented to patients will start to change. We hear time and time again from people who use mental health services that they haven't been given alternatives to antipsychotic medication as an option. What I'd like to see happen for the data from this study to start informing some of the discussions that practitioners have with young people at an early stage of their psychosis so that they can weigh up what the best treatment options are for them. But Dr Shona Franci stresses that not all young people facing psychosis have the option of going medication-free. She says that the clinical guidelines, which emphasise early intervention with medication, shouldn't be changing just yet, and more research needs to be done to work out who is most likely to benefit from cognitive behavioural case management as a standalone treatment. For Jonty, though, who recently marked three years since the psychotic episode that saw her lose a leg, while she would have liked to get better without using antipsychotics, she also knows that she probably wouldn't be where she is now without them. 
because things have been so I guess drastic in my story I can kind of see the good that it's doing for me for me I think I was always destined to have to be on medication I don't doubt that but I think if anyone can forego the medication for something else I would say yes go for it definitely university student jaunty ending that story from the health reports david murray if this story has raised any issues for you you can reach out to lifeline on 131114 or beyond blue 1300 224636 or talk to your gp about being referred to headspace or one of those other uh, help places and uh, places that you can seek help if you're a young person One of the mysteries about the COVID-19 virus is why young children are less affected than teenagers and adults. One theory is that their immune system might have become imprinted by common cold coronaviruses, which provide cross-immunity to SARS-CoV-2. With influenza, early experience to flu viruses might affect how we respond to influenza vaccines later in life. It's a concept that goes back 80 years, and it's called original antigenic sin. Dr. Simo Lakdwala is at the Centre for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh and has been investigating whether original antigenic sin is a real phenomenon and makes a difference to how we respond to future influenza viruses in our lives. What you were originally imprinted with, the first virus you ever experienced for influenza, can influence all of your subsequent interactions with influenza. And so we wanted to take that a little bit further and develop an animal model system and examine it with strains that are relevant now. And if you are imprinted with one strain of influenza, how does that change your immune response against a second influenza infection with currently circulating strains? And before we move on, what evidence is there that most of us have been exposed to influenza by age five? There's a number of seroprevalent studies that have been done in children and following infants from six months. And they show that around age five, more than 90% have antibodies against influenza. And the parents wouldn't have known because it would just been a cough and a cold like any other. Exactly. At that age, kids are sick all the time and, and you really don't know, unless it's a severe infection, of course. So what you did was you infected an, an animal model, I think it was ferrets, and then subsequently exposed them to other influenza viruses as these animals grew up. And you've also done human studies. Just can you summarize what you found? We used ferrets because they are naturally susceptible to human influenza viruses. So we could take commonly circulating strains and we could infect animals that were immunologically naive. So we can imprint them with one virus. And then we could come in three months later with another virus then look at the immune response against that second virus and say how much of that is targeted against the second virus and how much of that was a recall response to that first infection. And as if I understand the paper correctly, what you found was that when these animals were older, they were exposed to another influenza virus, they did get an immune boost, but it was kind of the wrong immune boost. It wasn't to the part of the virus that was actually going to help. That's right. And so it's really fascinating to see that what we found was an increase in antibodies, but they were not specific or cross-reactive, is a better term, to the second string. Were they harmful? Because one of the issues, particularly in children, is that they can get an adverse immune response to influenza, which can make them very sick. And is this part of the enhanced antibody response that's just not productive and might be harmful? We have not seen that there was enhancement of disease in the ferret model. 
that has been proposed in other animal model systems, but we did not observe that in the ferret model. And going back to your original finding in terms of you get boosting to one part of the immune response, but it doesn't help you with the new influenza virus. Is there any evidence that that occurs in humans now? Yes. So a part of the study um, was in collaboration with Audrey Gordon's group, um, where she has a great cohort in Nicaragua that they've been following for a number of years. Serum samples from her cohort sort of recapitulated what we found in the ferret model system. So intuitively, anybody listening kind of knows that you might have had flu in the past, but when you get seasonal variation in flu, you're exposed to the next variety of flu that comes along. And we're all exposed to pandemic flu if we get a really radical jump from, say, pigs or birds into humans. Intuitively, you've shown what lay people know to be true, but what does it tell us about either treatment or immunization to help more effectively prevent influenza infection in the future? I think it has really two big implications. One is that what does this mean for vaccination? When we think about understanding what individuals were imprinted with, how does that then change their response to vaccination in order to be protected in the next circulating strains of influenza? And that's an important avenue of research right now that we're really looking at. And we don't know yet how it will be influenced, but we do think that there's going to be some age-based influences that can help explain vaccine efficacy where you see higher vaccine efficacy in younger aged cohorts compared to the older healthy adults on certain seasons. And those numbers of efficacy can change based on age. And why would that be? The other thing, it could be that you lose it as you get older or that um, what you were imprinted with is so far away from what you're going to be seeing that the boost doesn't help you. So the influenza virus has evolved so much in the last 60 years mm -hmm. or something like that. Right. For what I take from your research, then what you've just said is that you might get to a point of personalized immunization where you might check what your original antigenic sin was and then tailor a vaccine to you later. Yeah, that might be an avenue forward is that based on your birth year, we can predict with some certainty what you potentially were imprinted with and then have a tailored vaccine based on age. How does this apply to the other common set of viruses that children are exposed to, which are, of course, the coronaviruses? Yeah, I think that there are many potential orthologs from our research that can be applied to what is happening right now in the current pandemic. Of course, there are human coronaviruses that have been circulating in the human population for a long period of time. And whether immunity and immune imprinting with these coronaviruses are influencing susceptibility to the current pandemic is unclear, but it's definitely worth thinking about. Dr. Seema Lakdawala is at the Centre for Vaccine Research at the University of Pittsburgh. The COVID-19 pandemic has seen lots of new procedures and processes put in place in our hospitals. Mind you, that doesn't seem to have stopped a large number of healthcare workers being infected in Victoria, although the authorities claim many were infected outside their hospitals. A new study about to be launched in Australia tests the idea that hospitals may do more harm than good when new rules are introduced without enough thought. The study is called In the Name of Safety and is based on findings from similar research in the UK. The lead researcher here in Australia is Dr Deborah De Bono from the Centre for Health Services Management at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the Health Report, Deborah. Thank you very much, Norman. Thank so, you for having me. So what's your hypothesis here that you're wanting to test? So 
What the um, ITNOS-A study, or is in the name of Safety Australia study, wants to look at is we want to identify non-clinical safety practices that are used in healthcare that do not actually add to patient safety and that could be potentially removed in the future. So what do you mean by non-clinical? Because in a sense, everything's clinical in hospital because it affects patients. Yeah, so we're looking at things like um, not not uh, treatment, not clinical treatment, not tests, but more things like uh, double-checking medications, pressure area assessments, you know, use of uh, paperwork, documentation, things like that. And what's your concern about those? Well... We know that in all healthcare systems and Australia, the Australian healthcare system is no exception, that we continue to add more initiatives, protocols and interventions, all in an an attempt to make care safer. Uh, But what also happens is that it impinges on healthcare workers' time. And we know there's an acute shortage of time and resources, a constant pressure on staff to do more. And... Anecdotally and from our research, we know that healthcare workers over time have been been complaining that actually they don't have as much time to spend with patients and to deliver care because they're caught up with having to, um, you know, follow or, or attend to bureaucratic, administrative and, you know, other non-clinical practices. So they see it as red tape? Yes, for a lot of the part, yes. And, yeah... And like red tape, I mean, the, if you look at the general economy and you've got governments coming and saying they're going to remove red tape, their assumption is that you've got regulation upon regulation and when you're putting in a new one, you don't take out an old one, so you've added to the burden. Is that an issue? Absolutely, Norman. That's absolutely the issue, yes. So can you give me other examples? I mean, what, I mean, what sort of question? I mean, you're about to start this survey. What sort of questions are you going to ask? So the the um, study, the survey is actually open, it's underway, so I'd like to give a plug, if I could, for that, for all healthcare workers. Uh, we're particularly interested in, um, you know, people that work in uh, acute care, but actually anyone we'd like, cleaners, porters, doctors, nurses. And what we're asking them is what what we want to find out are what are the most common non-clinical safety practices that healthcare workers identify as low value for patient safety. We want to know why they think these practices are perceived to be low value. And we're also interested in what healthcare workers do to work around those non-clinical practices that they perceive to be low value. A workaround. So in other words, a barrier is put in the way by the hospital and they find a way around it. Yes, they do. Yes. And we know that when they feel, um, you know, we know healthcare workers are constantly juggling different demands uh, to deliver care. And so at times they don't always follow the rules or procedures as they're intended to be followed. And in fact, they do work use workarounds. Now, the problem, workarounds are not a problem per se. You know, I'm not saying that they're good or they're bad or they're safe or they're unsafe because in different contexts, they can be either or. But there are a couple of things about workarounds. And one is that because they're often non-sanctioned practices, uh, healthcare workers are often not forthcoming in saying that they use them, which 
means that they hide what care is actually done. And so, and they're also guessing case, what's safe and they're freelancing when it could be dangerous. Their workaround could be dangerous. The workaround could be dangerous and in other, other situations the workaround may actually create safer care and actually enable care to be delivered. So I, I guess the argument is not whether or not workarounds are safe or unsafe. What we're... What, one of the concerns about workarounds is that they hide how care is actually delivered um, in some instances. And the other thing is my uh, research that looked at nurses' use of workarounds identified that a lot of the time they felt in, in a position where they had to use workarounds to deliver care, but they actually felt incredible tension about doing so. And we know that, you know, if healthcare providers are feeling stressed and, and that level of tension, it can potentially impact patient safety. And the other thing that we know is there's a really high rate of burnout in healthcare workers. So, uh, you know, high levels of tension and stress and feeling like, I, you know, they're in this position of not being able to follow all the rules and all the guidelines potentially can lead to um, yeah, yeah. burnout and people leaving the profession. Well, Deborah, we'll look forward to We'll have a link to your study on the Health Reports website. And thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. Dr. Deborah De Bono is a senior lecturer in the Centre for Health Services Management at the University of Technology, Sydney. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report, and I hope you can join me next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.